we like to tell ourselves stories. And when we keep telling ourselves these stories, we change our stories based on other people's stories. And I think you as a founder, you as an exec, your job is to consistently make sure you're aligning your team on what those stories should be and what the collective story that you're working on is. So yeah, we're gonna talk a lot about stories. Welcome to Trade-Offs, where product habits Heaton Shaw and Profit Wells Patrick Campbell discuss tech through a product-first mindset to inspire you to think differently. This week, they talk about the stories we tell ourselves. All you're really trying to do is have the same damn story because we do need to in order for business to grow. All things alignment. Problems only get bigger, and when they get bigger, they can explode. A certain level of standards. Who's the person with the lowest standards? Or what's the team with the lowest standards? And how do we level them up? Because they're the ones that are going to drag us down. And the social media app Clubhouse. Who is the primary user or use type that we filter every decision through? And for them, it's the... Welcome back to another episode of Trade-Offs. You got Patrick here, Heaton here. Uh, this week we're talking about stories, but Heaton, how, how's life? How are things? Uh, things are good. There's just lots of stories running around in all kinds of ways. And uh, on, our, on our quick two-minute pregame, so to speak, uh, we talked about a bunch of stuff going on in both of our companies, basically. And I think the commonality is we want to talk about stories and in particular stories that are running in people's heads while they're working in a company. Yeah, and to give some context, I feel I feel comfortable giving some of this context. We we've had we we were talking before we were recording, and this is why we should always just record straight from the jump, just so it gets interesting. But uh, we we're talking about how like we've had you know we've we've had people leave our companies before. It's always interesting how you know no matter like how it ends or those types of things, it's it's like the the narrative or the story changes from three months before that happened to you know very very different when that person leaves. And it's interesting to think through, well, is it because I let that narrative brew and then all of a sudden it reached a breaking point where they were just like, I've always felt this. I just never said it, which is kind of a dangerous thing. Or is it, oh, that person is rationalizing good or bad, you know, their time and therefore they're saying like, oh, this place actually sucked even though like it didn't or, oh, this place was amazing um, and they just you know feel bad. So they're kind of making it better than it was in some cases. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting. And that, that was kind of the, the the jump off for at least that part of the conversation. Yeah. And I mean, in that particular case, like the amount of times I've heard people leave a company and ask me for career advice and then really emphasize avoiding what they thought was bad about the last company in the next company they go to, that's another story, right? That's a common pattern, which is like, oh, I didn't like the fact that we had, you know, Coca-Cola in the fridge, right? I'm just making one up because that's what comes to mind. And I want to make sure that the next company I go to doesn't have Coca-Cola in the fridge. And, and like, that's like a story, right? The story is like, I didn't like this thing about that company. And now I'm going to do whatever I can to avoid that at my next, at the next job I go to. And what I found is that if someone leaves a company with some impression or a set of impressions like that, they actually probably need some time to synthesize it and get very clear about not what they're looking to avoid, but more importantly, what they're looking for in the next company. So instead of saying, I don't want Coke in the fridge, I love Pepsi. I want Pepsi in the fridge. That would be a better way to think about it. Still not, I think, ideal because you should evaluate companies you're joining and stuff and leaving, obviously, as objectively as you can, ideally. But that, that's where these stories come in, right? You're just basically biasing towards your last experience. And you're also biasing towards essentially the equivalent of 
some version of confirmation bias of confirming that what you're doing is the right thing to do. You're just basically looking for data points for your, for your, or information for your reasoning, right? And we do that all the time. We're, we're filling in the blanks as a lot of people in psychology call it. Yeah, and I think that we end up rationalizing, and you kind of touched on this, we end up rationalizing some direction, right? And, and what's really kind of fascinating is I think back to my, my less mature days. I won't say uh, my immature days because maybe those are still here depending on how you look at it. But if I look back at my less mature days, it's always interesting to see how you, until you kind of mature into like exactly like you said, like what I want, you end up kind of like, almost changing reality to suit whatever like outcome you're going for. Like, let's just say you like weren't a very diligent person, but you wanted a role that required diligence. Well, they just sucked because of this. They just sucked because of that. They just didn't want to do this. Or maybe you just like were not a great person, right? You know, at that particular role. Um, and you just need to, a different role. And it, it goes both ways. I think some people, they they end up romanticizing, you know, certain places that they maybe left on, you know, not so great terms because they were like, you know, I'm, I need to leave next week, you know, or something like that, which can always be a tough thing for a company and a team. Like, yeah, it's just super interesting to think through, you know, that reality distortion field that we all try to like put around ourselves and, and the people around us, which is always interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of this just goes back to leadership and management and things like that, because, you know, I, I've had scenarios where someone wanted to leave and even got a job and was putting in their two weeks and I just talked to them and I tried to figure out why and turned out to be some story that was incorrect. And then they decided not to leave even after they had signed an offer just because their story was incorrect. And they decided that they believed my story, so to speak. And it, it wasn't even one where I was trying to convince them. It was just simply something simple like the company can't afford what I want, for example, right? Or the company won't promote me, but they never had a discussion about it or anything. And somehow there was something running in their head that made them feel that way. And a lot of this stuff you can't capture as a leader uh, or a manager of people. You have to kind of extract it out of people or like find ways to read the tea leaves, so to speak, and to figure out like, what are they actually thinking? What's actually going on with people? And, you know, to, to to bring this to like areas that you and I care about a lot and think about is like, I think the thing that we got to that, that I've been, this is really funny conversation for me because there's just this whole stories thing is something I've been thinking about for like a, about a month now. And it, it even gets to like your opportunities when you're working with people, any team, but like one that comes to mind would be when you're on like a product team and there's a certain interpretation of what the customer said. Does everyone in the room interpret that customer feedback the same way? That's like one big issue because all this has to do with stories. And it's like, well, what story are they saying about the customer? How are they thinking about it? And does that actually align with how everyone else is thinking about it too? Because if it doesn't, then you're basically splintering whatever solution you come up with for that piece of feedback if you care to solve for it. And so... You know, I, I now pay so much attention to what people say and what the implications of their stories are for our work together. And I'm just watching for that because I've found that if I watch for that, then I can solve a lot of things much easier and much quicker, whether it's, oh, this person's no longer right for the company or, hey, this person needs a shift or even like, oh, the, the person's on point, you know, and it's kind of mirroring back like what I believe, right, about the company and being founder, uh, I tend to have a, a lot of different information than other people about the company. Um, and so, you know, it's really, it's really this 
micro course correcting on people's stories that I'm kind of latching onto as something. I'm sure there's people that have talked about this before, but it's something that's been really valuable for me to prevent the story that leads to someone leaving if it doesn't need to happen that way. I think what I always really struggle with is how do you, because you have your own rationalization, right? You know, yourself when you're in this and not to like incept the conversation, but like when someone, you know, is perceiving the feedback or someone is saying something that, you know, you're worried about the narrative that they might be building, you know, trying to fight each of those different battles, right? Um, like if they're bringing up, you know, some sort of narrative and you're like, well, hold on a second. No, 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 no. That's not how, you know, we should think about this or hold on a second. That's not how, you know, the positioning should be. And, you know, these words are really important, these types of things. It It's almost like, where do you draw the line, right? Like how often do you do that? Do you do that every single time? Maybe that becomes tedious. Maybe they're not getting it, you know, getting the alignment that you're looking for. And that's something I always struggle with because I'm a big, like, knock down every single, you know, objection. Like every time it comes up, try to say something big or small. But, you know, I've gotten feedback that that is not uh, not always appreciated, um, even if it's done, you know, in a very good and, and, and kind of positive manner. I don't think you're probably doing it as good or as much of a positive manner as you might think you are if you're still getting that feedback. That That's like what pops in my head because our impression of that is is our own and not someone else's impression of it. So to me, like it's your discernment, right? Like as, as a manager, as a leader, as the owner in the company, like, hey, this needs to be addressed versus, hey, this doesn't. And oftentimes, like I know another topic we want to talk about is Clubhouse, but I was actually on Clubhouse last night listening to a few conversations. I've been doing that less and less uh, just because there's lots of Clubhousing going on and got other things to do. But I was listening last night while I was working and Justin Kahn mentioned how he was in a meeting and he actually just told everyone, hey, I'm angry right now. It was obviously dramatic. And, and t- his whole story was typically I wouldn't do that. But in this moment, I recognized my anger and I decided to share it. And it had to do with a meeting where they were talking about KPIs, so metrics and stuff. And he had a real good insight on like the metrics just not being the right ones and things like that on this project or whatever he was talking about. This is just, again, paraphrased based on what I heard from him. And normally he would have just held it in. And he said that people would notice that something was wrong, but he wasn't saying it. And and then it would just get passed on and then, you know, whatever happens, happens, right? Like, But in this case, he decided to say something. And afterwards, he said that people thanked him, even because even though it was uncomfortable, it led to a better outcome. And, you know, I, I really resonated with this because recently I had a situation where someone was basically asking for more, more money, more equity, just more from the company. And I I just said no directly. And that led to a discussion, but I knew that I don't want any story in their heads where they can get more in this scenario. And there's lots of specifics to every scenario. So in this scenario, it was appropriate for me to say no based on me not wanting to lead somebody on and be very direct based on the scenario. And this was actually someone who's part-time and all that. So it gets a little more complicated, but the no was a very specific no. I knew the person wouldn't like it, but I said it anyway, because I wouldn't want them to have even an iota, even a single thought that they could ask for that and get it based on the circumstances we were in. You know, when you get into these stories and you start thinking about this, like, I would feel that like, what I look for is, is there discomfort in myself based on the conversation we're having? And if so, can I rapidly figure out what it is 
and get to the heart of it or do what Justin did and just voice your feeling even if you don't know why and see what happens. And I think like it's that vulnerability, so to speak, in those moments that actually lead to change. And so if you're giving feedback and you're hearing that people or doing this and you're hearing that people are like thinking it's inappropriate or micromanagement, you're probably not getting to the end goal, which is the person's story changing. And instead, all you're saying is your story is this, my story is this. Okay. Instead, what I try to dissect is like, well, you can ask, depending on the scenario, you can ask them a bunch of questions so you can make sure that what you understand about their story is also your story um, or your impression of what they're thinking. And then all you're really trying to do is have the same damn story. That's where my head always is, which is like, do we all have the same damn story about this thing? Because we do need to in order for business to go fast and business to grow. Because if we don't, after a meeting, then our meetings are bad. We're not doing the right thing on the meetings. If when you walk away from a meeting, everyone thinks different, different things. And I know it sounds absurd and I'm laughing about it, but like, this is a meeting. When you have meetings, people walk away with different impressions of what happened. Every meeting, I'll bet. And so I'm just, I'm, my tactic is just trying to prevent that. What I like to do is, and where I've kind of evolved with this is, so one, I, the, the, the stating of the emotion, I think that's actually a really good preface in a lot of ways, because I think it's, even if you don't know, stating something like, hey, for some reason, this is hitting me very like harshly. I don't know why, but like it at least gets it out there. So you're not like passive aggressively like saying things. And for me, a lot of times it, it comes down to like some insecurity around trust, which, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, both personal and also just the nature of the role and the nature of building something. And so I've always found saying something like, hey, like I'm a little insecure about us being on the same page about this. Um, and I always like attribute it to me. Like, I'm always like, oh, like, I think I'm just like, it's my trust thing, you know, that type of thing. Like, can we just like talk through this? And normally that helps like that type of conversation. The other little tactical thing, and I'd love your opinion on this, is that I actually try to get like the same statement that we agree on in this conversation, especially if there's a disagreement about something, like always trying to get like, hey, this is this is like, so, you know, this is what I did with someone who's actually, you know, leaving. And I, I said like, okay, so you're leaving because of X, Y, Z, right? And they said, well, no, not Z. Z is actually like this. I was like, oh, cool. Let's find the right adjective or let's find the right whatever. And then that actually facilitates the conversation so that at the end of the conversation, it's like, okay, you're leaving because of X. That's the main thing. But then there was this other like X, Y, or Y and Z thing that wasn't great. And then that actually helps like make it not about a you versus me thing. It makes it about let's put this thing together ourselves so we can have like the same story. And one little piece of that that I also do is, and this is the one that you got to be careful with if someone's like, you know, very much like, you know, sensitive to whatever the topic is, is like, hey, so like play it back to me. What are you taking away from this conversation? Those types of little tactics help like, oh, okay, well, they said something completely different than I said uh, or I felt. So let's continue and like, let's figure it out, which, you know, can always be tough. I'm really into the kind of reframing, realignment. In that process, I think the the deeper you dive into even sales, the more you get good at that kind of stuff. Because in sales, if someone says something, your job is to repeat it and make sure you're aligned on what they're saying and keep going until you both are on the same page about what their needs are or what the problems are that they have. And I think you're doing something similar there where you're sort of 
mimicking back what you heard or, or just rephrasing what you heard in your own words to make sure that the other, it lands right for the other person. One thing I would say about that too is that the process of doing it, to your point about how you do it, I think there's no generic way to say, like, this is how you do it in every scenario. And that's what I learned as I was doing sales because one one tactic I've, I've, I've sort of adopted uh, in a lot of meetings is actually this simple thing to start off, if, especially if there's no clear agenda or it's like a leadership team meeting or something like that where you're like looser on purpose. Uh, if you're not loose on purpose, then this still works like with an agenda. But I literally come into a meeting saying, hey, I'm just going to talk about where I think we're at with this and just anybody tell me where you think I'm wrong or where you think like we need to adjust and this is inaccurate. It's almost like you start the meeting with the alignment conversation, someone leads it and everyone's just chiming in on anything that could be off about it. And then by the end of it, you have like the end of the first part of a meeting, you have like, oh, we're all aligned on these three things. Sometimes you don't even need the rest of the meeting if you do that extremely well, because it's like, hey, everyone's already aligned. Okay, let's go. Let's get out of here. Right, We're done. And oftentimes, like nobody does that. And you just start jumping into like really tactical stuff without looking at the higher level. And in a way, you could just say, hey, let's review our agenda for today. But that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is let's review the decisions that were made already kind of thing, right? And depending on the kind of meeting, it's a different tactic. But I actually come in pretty hot in a meeting like that in, in the sense of being able to align everybody. And people tend to be really open on that in the first parts of a meeting compared to after they've already spent a lot of effort, you know, talking about whatever they want to. And so I, I found that to be really useful, which is you align first, you just let people pour on about anything that's off. In fact, I learned it from learning sales a lot better because if you have a second call, so here's a really good example that I think works in meetings too. But if you're on a first call and you did a first demo of your product or whatever on a sales call really well, you've already achieved an understanding of their business. So let's assume you're good at that and you did that. You get on a second call, the best of the best who are like trying to move the it forward on the other side, like the best champions, they're coming in reviewing the last meeting anyway to the whole team. Like, hey, this is Heaton and he, you know, he works with FYI and like we talked about X, Y, and Z. So I'm here today. We're here today to review blah, blah, blah. Right. That's the best of the best. So I just adopted that and said, well, whether they do it or not, I'm just going to do it and just say, hey, I just want to review what we heard yesterday or what we heard on the last call from, you know, Dave. Right. And I know all of you weren't there. So let me just review that. That honestly is so powerful on sales that I don't see why you wouldn't use it in other places. And it's so simple. So, and again, it goes back to stories for me, which is like, what's our story here? Are we on the same page? Are we speaking the same language? Are we telling the same story? So that's why I love what you said, because you're essentially doing some form of that constantly, just so that we can all be aligned. And I love the word alignment. I use it a lot. Um, I try not to use it as much internally, because otherwise people are going to think, oh, that's the alignment guy. Um, but in general, like it's realignment, reassessing things repeating things so that you're all on the same page and doing that a little more almost painfully in some ways until there's a culture of feedback and editing and things like that inside the company. Because what you're really talking about is giving everybody an opportunity to edit and give their thoughts in a very comfortable way before you really dive into like opinions. And oftentimes we're all on the same page anyway. So anyway, that's my long-winded, I love what you said. Kind of thing. 
Yeah, I'm wondering what, what I struggle with a little bit with this is like, like, I don't think there's anyone, there probably are personality types that are predisposed to alignment or like even seeking alignment in these types of things. It's not quite agreeableness. Oh, yeah. You know, there's something there. What I worry about is, is that a lot of us need to learn to align, right? This is part of like learning to work, but it's also part of learning to like build an organization. What I struggle with sometimes is like, at what point do you kind of give up on like, you know, someone getting aligned to whatever it is, like alignment in general, but like, at what point have you tried so many times to get something across? And it, it very well might be you just not being able to get it across, but like, at what point do you just kind of like give up and like have that person move to a different role or, or, you know, move out of the company because they just can't get it. And that's, that's what I always struggle with. Cause at ProfitWell, we've gotten into situations where, and you and I've talked about this, where like, you know, we'll have someone there for over a year that we're just trying and we're always assuming we're wrong. We're always assuming, oh, we didn't explain it. Let's try like these seven different angles and one sign. And this is a little, you know, kind of, um, you know, foreshadowing, like, is like, they're not trying to understand that you're coming at it from all these different angles and they're trying to just like, you know, stay at that one place. Like, and so it's just like tough sometimes to figure out like, and there's probably no right answer, but like, what are your thoughts on like, when do you just like, cut the cord, if you will, like the alignment's just not going to work and could be for a whole host of reasons. Let's just assume it's us, but still like we got to move on. I've never seen a messy situation because I, I would describe what you're saying as a messy situation. And the reason it's messy is because one party's trying really hard and usually it's management to make things work. And the other party is having to deal with that, if that makes sense. And, and so, and that's usually what ends up happening. And I think these are like problems and this is like, what causes chaos at a lot of companies because you have all these people and some of them might not be the best at what you need them to be right now. My short answer is like, if you're constantly redirecting stories properly and properly meaning aligning, realigning, keeping that going, then you're just going to know when it fails and the other party will too, when it's just not working. Because it's, it's like, I know this sounds bad, but like, it's almost like a constant pip. It's like a constant performance improvement plan. Because what you do there is you want to, I mean, there's a lot of reasons you do those, but most of the time it's because the person's already out the door and you know they are and you just want to document things. Well, what if you actually took it down a notch and said, well, it's not a pip, but we're just constantly going to make sure that like we have the same understanding and there's just a very clear, no way to get this wrong understanding between the parties about what's going on and 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 what's happening. So oftentimes as leaders you're going to sit there and as managers you're going to sit there and be like I know what's best and 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 you might and I'm going to do these things. But you never told the person you're managing <laughs> that these are the things we're doing. And that's a sign of chaos. That's a sign of confusion. That's a sign of lack of alignment, which is the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish. So I love that like you're even in the spot and thinking of it like, oh, when's enough enough? The way I look at it though is like, enough was yesterday, always. So then how do you make sure that you're just constantly able to keep in tune with the person and be honest with them? Like I've had this scenario, I'm sitting on one of these scenarios right now where I'm not the manager, someone else is, and we're doing a lot of work that we don't need to be. And there's some things to work through, but one of the biggest things that comes to mind for me is really simple which is, did we course correct appropriately and directly when we should have? And if the answer is no, then we better do that now. Because if the answer is no, it means you haven't been doing it. 
And it basically means that like, there's just a fundamental misalignment on expectations and misalignment on what that person's role actually is and what the requirements are for that role. And all that means is that you should deal with this early so that nobody's wasting their time. And, and I don't just mean managers. I actually am more worried about the employees and the team members and their time being wasted working in a role where they're not growing, working in a role where they're challenged beyond their limits or working in a role where they're not challenged enough, whatever the problem is, because that just sucks for them. And as somebody who employs people, like I don't ever want to put someone in that position. And so it might be harsh, right? Like me saying, hey, you're never going to get more, but it's the truth. And if I don't bring the truth, then we don't get to like figure this out quickly. We take our time. And that, and if we take our time, that means that no, nobody's doing the right thing. We're just all just like in some chaotic land. So that that's kind of my way of thinking about it uh, today. And I, I don't, I feel very strongly about this at this point, which is like, if you're direct, obviously not offensive or anything, but if you're direct when you need to be, then let it land. And that will open up the discussions you need to have instead of trying to fix things. I, I just don't think you get to fix these things, to be honest. And I know that's that's a really harsh truth, but you don't get to fix problems that are systemic and repeated repeated with a team member. It's it's just not like you don't you want to prevent getting in that spot. And if you find yourself in that spot, you want to basically go all the way back to why did we get here? How did we get here? What did we do wrong or incorrectly? And how do we course correct really fast? Even if that's like, hey, should have done this earlier. Let's talk about this right now kind of discussion with somebody. Yeah. A couple of things that helped us with this. Like one, when when you start to notice that misalignment, like, and we're talking like major misalignment at this point. We're not talking like, oh, they keep describing the product as yellow when it's, you know, Amarillo or something. Like, you know what I mean? It's like a little off. But um, I think that what's what's interesting is, I think you have two types of, of execs, right? And it's, it's more of a spectrum, but like we all start off, you know, on one end and then we kind of slowly go towards the other, I think. And that's like the person who's like the really quick, they, they almost took, you know, a bad decision quickly is better than, you know, a good decision that took forever. Like they almost took that type of advice like way too seriously. And then you have the folks who like think, oh, it's always my fault. I don't know. Like maybe we should like consider this. We could have described it this way. And I think that what what ended up happening for us, the first thing was, is as soon as you see misalignment, like especially major misalignment, we write a memo, you know, especially, and a lot of these are like value-based. It's like, hey, how do we make decisions here? What is the definition of like most charitable interpretation? What does it mean for feedback non-negotiable? Like we write something where we get the thoughts down on paper so that it's easy for people to consume. And also like then it sparks a lot of conversations, right? Like, and then what we've also done like very pragmatically is, is we've gotten better at just our instincts of like, hey, if there's major misalignment on these like five things, um, it's just not going to work. Like no matter what we do, and it, it doesn't mean that person's bad. It doesn't mean that, 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 that we're better or anything. It just means we're just not the culture for them. And, and like, that's okay. Right. Like there's a different culture that they can go after. And then pragmatically adding really good severance, um, actually helped a lot. So basically being like, you know, matter if that person was here this amount of time or that amount of time, like they get good severance. It helped a lot of managers who were very, um, hesitant with some of this stuff, like basically be like, oh, okay, well, we're not like putting them out. It's not like it's going to be like the end of the world. They're going to be able to find something within this time frame, so on and so forth. It also made our hiring better because all of a sudden it was like, 
oh, well, this is not, you know, this is the cost of a hire. We better like be a lot more diligent and aligned, you know, to continue the theme here um, on that type of person. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's less about like the timeline I think that I described. And it's more about, like you said, every time you find those bugs, like go and fix them like right away and try to fix them in a structural way, not just like a reactive way. Yeah. I think what you said at the end there is really important, which is like, realize when you're getting reactive. Because that means that there's something fundamental there that you probably need to kind of step back on. But that goes back to like, what stories are you telling yourself and like what's being triggered for you? Everything. Everything's triggered. Yeah, always. <laughs> of course, you're a founder. <laughs> I always, yeah. The other thing I always find funny with this is like, we've had a couple of people, I describe it as going full tilt, like the poker term uh, for those who don't know. I don't even actually know if this is the right definition, but like something happens on the table where like you had such good hand, but then you ended up getting like basically getting beat that your just emotions and your judgment just goes all out of whack. We've had a couple of people over the years and, and in understanding it very much in hindsight, it's like, Oh, like we didn't get alignment on some of these things. This resentment started building up these types of things, but it's, it's, it's something you want to avoid at all costs. Cause those types of people, like it's terrible for them. Like, cause they feel like they're in a corner or they feel like, you know, they were promised something or something like that when you weren't direct, like, bringing up the directness and the honesty point you made. But it also is terrible in the long run because they they think you are evil. Like they think you're the devil. They think you're terrible and it, you're, you're not. Like it's just more like, oh, there's this giant misunderstanding that it was never handled and problems only get bigger. And when they get bigger, they can explode, right? Um, yep. You know, and all of a sudden it's like, hold on a second. And then you're sitting there afterwards and you're like, how could they possibly have thought this? This makes no sense. And it's like, well... Yeah, we never addressed that. We never were direct. You thought like, oh, it was clear when it wasn't. And I don't know, thankfully we haven't had those in a while, but that's just something like for early stage folks, like it's really important to get ahead of this, especially early execs too, who like haven't seen um, that many reports before. Yeah, I mean, management's like such a pain. I love management, but like why, why is everyone like, I want to be a manager? Is it just the money you think or they think it's the clout? Like what, what is that? What is that mentality that people get into? I don't tend to hire people that want to be managers. Why is that actually? Almost. I want to hire people who are managers. I want to hire people who are managers and I want to hire people who don't want to be managers. I don't necessarily want to hire people who want to be managers. And I, we also, at my companies don't hire junior engineers. And there's just a very simple reason. It has nothing to do with anyone against being a manager. I, I coach people on becoming managers, but nobody on our teams. And I even coach people who are junior engineers on like things that maybe they need to learn, right? Um, or what roles they should go into. But we don't hire those people because quite frankly, we don't know how to support those people yet. In my companies, we don't know how to support junior people on engineering and, and get give them the right experience that they need. They could probably do that elsewhere much better. Um, in terms of management, we don't have a management track. So we don't actually have a, hey, here's how you become a manager here. Um, and here's what we can teach you about doing that. And I'm sure like people would get value from working with us if they wanted to be managers because we take this stuff really seriously and we do talk about it with people. But it isn't something we can support them with if they want to become one at our company. And so inevitably, if someone wants to become a manager, in most areas, we're very hesitant. The one exception is engineering. If someone comes in, they want to be a manager on engineering, that's the only exception I would say we make simply because we need more managers on engineering over time, no matter what. 
because of the idea of like our head of engineering and the way you break out the teams and the way you do all that, that's a little bit of a different story, but our head of engineering feels like he can help people become managers in his part of the business. Um, I don't think that's the case in other parts of the business today. That's kind of my take, which is like kind of know yourself, right? And know your organization and make sure that like you're aligning to that. And again, that doesn't mean people who want to be managers are bad. And that doesn't mean junior engineers are bad. It just means that we're very conscious about what we can do for people and what we can't. Yeah. But that's a really, that's the more important point than I think even the words you're saying is like, what can we support and what, what is going to be optimized for? Because I think a lot of people, they get caught in, oh, let's have an internship program. Let's do this. Let's do that. And for a lot of roles, it's like, you don't realize how much more time that's going to cost you. It's not, you're not going to gain time. Like you think like, oh, it's really cheap, like team member, right? It's very rare that you find the person that actually reduces time, no matter how good they are, right? We also, the manager point, um, people who want to go into strategy, uh, that's a good tell for us. You know, we do dig a little bit on that, but it's also one of those things where it's like, oh, this person, like, it's so broad that it's really, really difficult. Like that person's going to need a lot of coaching, which is great. It's just, you maybe have time for like one of those people, um, you know, versus like a whole team of those people. And um, this is also why it's interesting. Netflix, they, at least for the longest time, they don't have internship programs. You know, they, they didn't have them. Um, They try not to do as many junior folks. And that's the other like kind of interesting thing that we actually had a conversation about recently because we we learn a lot from Netflix, at least from the style, because we think like it's a little counterintuitive to what's going on right now. But it's it's one of those things that's really interesting is um, we made a realization that we probably should have made before. Oh, they don't deal with some of the things that we might have to deal with because they don't have like an inside sales team. They have like people selling, you know, $5 million, you know, type contracts and these types of things, but they don't have like you know, a model where the model is kind of built on having, you know, junior sales folks go into senior sales folks and so on and so forth. And so that's something we've been kind of thinking about, particularly around alignment, because um, just by the nature of having, you know, more junior employee or team members, um, you, you, you have a little bit more of an alignment. Uh, I don't, I shouldn't say that on junior, but like maybe junior in mindset or junior in career, you tend to have a little bit of a harder alignment conversations than more senior folks, although senior folks can definitely make it difficult as well. That's what's been really interesting, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, is some of the some of the, the worst alignment situations we've had have been like people who are senior who brought in a lot of baggage and we just didn't test or align enough up front. And I'll put that all on us, right? You know, obviously it takes two to tango, but it's also like, you know, we, you know, we just didn't know what to like be really upfront about. And then we've had really good success taking not quite junior folks, but like early career folks and like getting them into mid or even senior at this point. So we almost are like, you know, we kind of want this like really nice sweet spot right in the middle, at least for now. And we're just going to have to get better and better at the senior folks, I think. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, It's legitimately tricky uh, to kind of bring on new managers Uh, and new managers, meaning new managers into your company that might be like just managers, period. But if you think about the experience there, depending on how you recruited them and what baggage they're bringing, like you said, what they what they're carrying over from the last company, there is a what we do with managers when we do hire them is there is a ton of like upfront understanding and feeling about are they going to be if they're going to be joining the leadership team, which typically they are, uh, or joining, you know, a, a certain piece of the org and have to do meetings with like one of the leaders, for example, if it's managers on their team, are they fully aligned with the way we work? And like, then we get into like a lot of questions like that 
that we evaluate during the interviews. And this is where like, you know, they tell you like, you know, uh, a hire should be a yes, or we shouldn't hire them right across the board. That's what we look for in the leadership and the management. It always has to be a yes across the board. And if there's any hesitation and we identify what it is, and usually it's a cultural thing, especially with a manager. And then we go identify whether that, how that person feels about it. So then we just go talk to them like, Hey, everything's great. You know, lots of people love you. There's one thing that, you know, that we should talk about and just make sure that that's covered. And, you know, if that, if it just doesn't make sense for you, fine. And we, so we try to figure out what it is and pose a scenario even for that situation to the person before we hire them. But that whole idea of like, everyone is like bullish on this person and wants them on board is what we look for. And if that isn't there, this is one of the key areas, if not the key area we work on, which is, well, what is it? And usually it's a management style misalignment. And as an org, you have one management style and then it gets splintered. You don't have 20 management styles in a company. It's actually one that's splintered. And I think people kind of mistake micromanagement, not micromanagement, a whole bunch of stuff like that to be org-wide. That's not true. Org-wide is more values and how we treat people. And I, so I would say that like, if someone's listening to this, like, what do you mean? Well, it's like the company's always aligned or has to be always aligned on how every area of the company treats people. And you can tell when companies aren't, but that's the thing I look for, at least in our own company. And it's much easier to do smaller, but as you get larger and management bifurcates and there's more managers and stuff, I think this is where you have like tenured middle management at certain really large companies that probably shouldn't be middle management at this point. Uh, and whether that's, they should be more senior or more junior, who knows, but that, that's what happens, right? You have this sort of bigger issue of the way the management style being very different across the whole company. And this is like 10,000 plus companies with middle management. And then you have fiefdoms and things like that, that like are, you know, kind of natural, uh, but need to be kind of pruned and taken care of. And, you know, last thing I'll say is like reorgs. <laughs> this is why reorgs happen, right? And they're not bad. It's just why reorgs happen, right? It's to retune this stuff and, 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 and figure out the management problems in a different way. It's always interesting. You know, like the there's a lot of stereotypes with like corporate, like larger companies, right? Especially when it comes to management. Do you feel like most of those are just inevitable? Like, do you feel like it's mostly like some of the fiefdom stuff, um, some of the like middle management issues, like just at a given size, like, is it inevitable? Like, I can't think of, I guess Netflix, but I, maybe I'm just like, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, making it into a bigger thing than it actually is. Like, I can't imagine a large group of people where you don't have bugs and maybe it's just how they handle the bugs. That's the important part. Yeah, I think it's how you handle the bugs, frankly, and how you handle them on the way up in terms of growth uh, in the headcount and and how aligned you are in the leadership team. So I would say that I would probably admire Apple over Netflix, except we don't get to know enough about Apple. Um, and the reason for that is the constant delivery of innovation, which makes all these issues like really hard. You know, if you're constantly del delivering innovative product, um, I think it's really tough to like, not have fiefdoms and things like that and and all that. But like, you know, the word that comes to mind for me that I focus on is um, standards. What Like, what are our standards and how high are they for the things that we're looking for? And wh who's, who's the person with the lowest standards or what's the team with the lowest standards and how do we level them up? Because they're the ones that are going to drag us down. 
and I don't know how Apple works. I'm not going to profess to, but like, from what I understand, the standards are extremely high there and they're very much like leadership pushing those standards and pruning and, you know, even their universe, Apple university, like, I don't know if they were one of the first or early on in building out that function, but it's pretty impressive if you talk to someone that kind of is willing to share with you about Apple's university initiative internally uh, and how they kind of run that and the kind of material you get and what you learn about Apple. It, it's really fascinating. They've, they've documented more than I've ever seen before about what being at Apple means and what, and, and what um, behavior, for lack of a better word, is acceptable and unacceptable to. And they do it in such a fantastic, non-kind of negative way. Because a lot of that thing, a lot of that stuff can be negative because it's like you're coming to a company now, they're going to tell you how to behave. And like literally, if you read the material, that's exactly what they're telling you. They're telling you how to behave. They're telling you acceptable and unacceptable behavior, but they're not doing it in a way where you feel like you're being controlled or it's your parents. They're doing it in a way where it's like, this is Apple. This is who we are. And these are the scenarios you're going to hit. And this is what we would want you to do in those scenarios. It's like really good stuff. Again, I think... Netflix is great because they're public about a lot of it. Apple is even better, in my opinion, because they we can see the results. Not that Netflix isn't innovative. They absolutely are. But I am more impressed with Apple because I know how hard it is to make all those decisions that lead to a product that I'll, we are all delighted by. Uh, not that Netflix isn't because, you know, and again, this is like a little bit more on brand for us. But like as a tangent, like Netflix's video experience can't be beat by anybody else. That's innovative, in my opinion, because you go look at Prime. It's good. It's probably second, in my opinion. But then you start looking at like Disney and like Spectrum, Spectrum TV and CBS and even Apple. And you're like, hmm, like that experience could definitely be improved. And Netflix is such a had has set such a high standard. So I guess I guess just as a thought, I just look for companies and orgs where like I believe they have really high standards for the work, and then try to figure out how are they making sure that the teams keeps to them. And it does go all the way down back to managing individuals and the stories that everyone's telling themselves and how you're editing and giving feedback to make sure that everyone's aligned. It always goes back to that. I think the editing piece is always fun because I think you, it's just the, the nature of size, right? Just makes it really complicated because you have different gatekeepers um, and those gatekeepers multiply. And I just think of when you were saying Apple with high standards, I was thinking of Google, right? And like the different, there's a lot of differences between Apple and Google, obviously. But one thing I thought of was like at at Apple, a lot of the stuff that's been happening, kind of in the social conscience, you know, the past couple of years, you didn't hear a lot of that from the Apple employees, right? Like Apple employees aren't trying to unionize. Apple employees aren't, you know, doing walkouts, these types of things. And they're a large organization; it's been around for a long time, right? Whereas Google, they're having these issues and right or wrong, like we're not going to get into those, but it's like you have some of that. Netflix didn't have those um, issues that I know of. They did have some internal strife, but it was it actually was more complicated. I think that was one of the the, the, the best situations I ever ran into is I, I was at a small event with, um, I think he was the head of product from Netflix or he was or just he was there for like definitely a couple decades like throughout the, the rise, but it was the situation with the guy saying, you know, the, the N word essentially. And I was like, oh, this is a really fascinating like conversation because Netflix is always like the, you know, the bastion of, um, you know, we take intent and we take all these things and, you know, it's not just like a word. Well, 
the reason the guy left wasn't that word. He left because he did the word. They talked to him about it after a big all hands and everything. And then he did it again. <laughs> and so it was like a thing where it was like, okay, you know, that th that culture like appreciated that and that culture, you know, kind of took care of its own. But then you have other cultures that are having walkouts and like doing a bunch of other things because of either things they're doing, like even Facebook. So I don't know if it's the standards that that seems like something, maybe it's the strength of the culture that they're defending. Like, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's just kind of interesting how you can have large organizations that have different outcomes, even if the revenue outcomes for all intents and purposes are all, you know, trending in the same direction, no matter the company. So yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it goes back to directness and, being polarizing on purpose. And so I think Apple and Netflix are polarizing. If you come in there and you don't like it, you're going to leave. Like you're just going to leave. There's no like question. I think Facebook's different. I think Facebook used to have a lot more of that from what I could tell. And something splintered probably just because of how much they're dealing with as a company as they've grown, like a lot more than most companies in terms of attacks, for lack of a better word. Uh, on many different fronts. And so it's going to be like much harder. And I think Google is like, it's always been kumbaya. It's always been like, no, oh, that's not googly enough or that's not googly or, you know, like that they're known for the fun campus historically, right? And they've had to shift and are just in the middle of that transition, if you ask me, and it's chaotic. And I don't know if that transition will fully get rooted because of almost like purposeful splintering where they basically made now alphabet, right? And like purposefully splintered so that they could have the million cultures and do it the googly way and hopefully be okay. But we'll see what the outcomes are. But at the end of the day, like this is just fascinating because here's here's the funniest thing, I think, and the most almost scary thing in a way at the same time, which is like this stuff gets rooted at first five, 10 people. And then that's what it is. That's just what it is. I don't know if I ever told you this. Our first hire ever kid out of school, like, okay, let's just get him sending emails, right? Like, so dumb, dumb decision out of the gate, just in terms of like choice of that. I remember him, like, just performance wasn't there, KPIs. And I was very like, oh, like, what's, you know, what's going on? Like, like, is it not being clear? Like, do you need help? Like these types of things. And, and he said something like, let's just like the culture doesn't like inspire me to like get this done or something like that. And I remember I, I emailed Darmesh. And I was like the the culture, you know, guy, right? And I remember being like, oh, Darmesh, like, oh, the culture, like, uh, I just, I'm so worried. Like, I'm not creating a culture, blah, blah, blah. And he emails me back. He's like, how many team members do you have? And I was like, oh, it's three of us. And he's like, he's like, at that size, the people are the culture. This is just not a fit. Like, this guy is just not a fit for what you're trying to do or like a fit for the work that you're trying to do, like, and it's just, it's just kind of funny. It's like very similar, like the word culture, very similar to, um, you know, Googly. Like when I was at Google, like people would say like, oh, this is the, this is the thing we're going to say in order to like hide what we really mean or like push in this direction or another. It's just that lack of clarity. And, and, and one thing like in that you just made me kind of spark is like they do TGIF or like basically in all hands every Friday. And it's like open forum. Like anyone can say something, but it's always like, oh, we'll consider that, we'll think about it, that type of thing. And I think that they would have a lot of power with, no, sorry, that's not how this is, this is not how it works here. Or, yep, that is how it works here, we'll fix that, like those types of things. And, and I've learned over the years, like alignment takes having an opinion and not being accommodating 
to every other opinion. And that's really hard. That's really hard to internalize when you're trying to build a team for the first time because you think like, well, I need everybody. I need people, people, people. It's like, no, you need the right people. And the right people doesn't mean there's wrong people. It just means that there's people that don't align to your mission. And so, yeah, it's interesting. I, I just look at it like consistency and clarity is what leadership should bring. And if if a company is telling people we'll consider that or we'll take that into consideration or any of those things you said, that's the opposite of consistency and clarity. And because you're just basically passing the buck on to somebody else or some other time. And yeah, there are a lot of sensitive topics and things like that that you actually do need to consider. But then when you need to consider those and you say it, it's going to sound the same to the employees as when you considered like whether you kind of have gluten-free pizza in the cafeteria or not, right? Like, yeah, we consider, we're going to consider that, right? And then when there's like a big issue, it's like, oh yeah, we're going to consider that too. It's like, wait, <laughs> pizza in the office, and it's also National Pizza Day today, but pizza in the office versus like some serious ethical AI issue or whatever the heck's going on over at Google, like those are very different, like we'll consider it scenarios, right? Um, and I think people just take you less seriously if you start using that, same stuff everywhere. And that's why the googly thing is like a funny thing now, because yeah, it's what you said. Like, you know, people whisper and be like, yeah, we just say that with like, we don't like it, <laughs> you know, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, it, it was fun because like there's been movies about Google and, and that whole approach, right. And things like that, where they included that narrative. And it's true. Like that's how it was for people that experienced it. And even people from the outside talking to your friends that work at Google, they'll tell you shit like that. And you're like, okay, that's cool. I don't know what Googly means, but I like Google. I use it every day. So if, if I don't know what it means, but cool, like Google's cool. <laughs> like, um, and, and so I think there's a whole allure to those kind of things that obfuscate the truth and the directness that you, especially at a startup early on, you need. And that thing Dermesh said about culture to you, I think it's super true. There's not much you have to do with culture in the beginning. You just have to be yourself and make sure that people that come on are aligned with the, your ways of working. And I think it goes back to ways of working early on if you're trying to identify it. And you, you you folks probably had a way of working and that other person just wasn't a good fit for that way of working. That That's a simple way I would think about it. I don't think it's culture early on. I think it's rooted in the way, way the team works together. And I've seen so many early stage teams and even like bunked at different early stage teams offices. And I call it bunk because like I was sitting there at like 1 a.m. when they're shipping and just watching the cultures. It's just so fascinating early on when you're just looking around, looking at the people, how different people react to the things and all that. And you can find people that are just not exactly have the same way of working at the core and that just probably won't be a fit over time. And lo and behold, over time they leave, you know, and, and this is very evident at early stages. And then as you watch a company grow. I think the other piece that we brought up, and this is kind of like a hard pivot with like the gatekeepers, it's also kind of interesting how like optionality as well as like communication channels are making this I don't think it's more complicated. I think it's actually allowing people to like more quickly switch in a bunch of different places. So to kind of summarize what we're talking about, like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you you got in your job and you kind of sat down and shut up because you were just like, I got to make sure I pay the mortgage, right? Now there's a lot of optionalities on how to, you know, make a living. And there's also a lot of options, especially with remote, which has not only forced into people being aligned, but also has kind of given a lot of options and a lot more competition for, for team members. And I think that what I'm really fascinated, if we take a really 30,000 foot view level, is like a lot of these gatekeepers are getting broken up and we're getting towards a point where eventually we'll have like much closer to an equilibrium between like 
team member as well as like management if you want to look at it that way or even like you know and here's the hard pivot like you know media and clubhouse right and i don't think it's necessarily clubhouse i think it's just like a trend that's been going like twitter started doing this facebook definitely did this you know start trying to like you know kind of bring down gatekeepers but it's it's been kind of interesting how clubhouse is is starting to be like the straw that breaks the camel's back in this kind of narrative of like you know oh we're gonna start our own media channel and Dreesen horowitz announced and oh, like we're going to kick the journalist out of the clubhouse room, which happened um, over the past uh, week or so here. And it's just kind of getting interesting that technology is, is, is you know, basically lowering the playing or leveling the playing field in many, many different ways, which I think is a net good, but is going to have some interesting bumps along the way. Well, I just saw this interesting button in clubhouse called a report for trolling. Oh, is that the actual name of the button? It's a new button. I didn't see it before. Um, and, 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 and to your point, like these platforms, they do control, uh, our impression of people. So that already assumes there's going to be trolls. It's a really interesting way to kind of solve that gatekeeper like problem and, and kind of, we'll see what happens with it. I'm, I'm just really intrigued. And, and that product in particular, and I'm glad we're talking about it because it's rare to see a founder Paul and Rohan, uh, the founders, be so careful and smart about product UI and UX. So when I say, oh, troll, and they put the word there, I've never seen that word on YouTube or anywhere else as a button. And so they're almost bringing to light this issue. And I think they have a very strong belief about how they want to not police the system, but enable everybody to police the system and what happens and again, I'm butchering it, but if you just go into Clubhouse and listen to any of their sort of, uh, I forgot what they call them, but like they do, they, they do like a community conversation and like talk about the future of Clubhouse and what they're thinking right now and all that. And even when you hear like Paul in particular talk about how he thinks about the product and the community that's being developed or the set of communities and all that, it's incredible how, how careful they are and thoughtful they are, more importantly, about what they want and how they're going to get there. And yeah, there is a lot of drama about the app, but I almost feel like there has never been a social product that doesn't have drama early on, especially, you know, and, and, then, and then does it survive the drama and how does it survive the drama? That's really what matters. And, you know, and a good example is Twitter survived the drama by basically almost ignorance in a lot of ways and by basically letting the crowd deal with it is what I would describe it as. And yeah, they have some of these buttons now, but those buttons are very similar to the same buttons Facebook has. And they're kind of adopted across the industry. But this this platform, Clubhouse, is an audio platform. And it's real time. And it's like podcasting, but not. But audio changes, like I think, the whole mental model of it. And the reason that product is working is because of the product decisions that were made that aren't just copying from the rest of social media. And I think that's like the one of the most interesting things about that business today, which is very little of it is a copy of anything else. I was listening. I can't remember what day it was. I was driving to Florida and there was an interview between Kevin Rose and uh, I think his name's Keith Urban, the wait but why guy. Um, and they were talking about a bunch of really fascinating stuff around like uh, Keith's writing a new book about basically the crux of the talk. And I think the crux of the book is like, instead of just having a left, right, you know, access like in the traditional sense, adding a, a y-axis of like 
high rung, low rung, you know, like these types of things, because and, and it was a really fascinating conversation, but not the topic of this discussion. It evolved into, I think it was Paul, one of the founders of Clubhouse, and Ev Williams talking about some of the things that you were just mentioning. And it was really interesting because Keith, in the context of the conversation, was asking like, well, how do you solve for this? How do you solve for that? What if, you know, a crazy person on the left does that, wants to cancel everyone? What if a crazy person on the right, you know, does a bunch of racist things? Like, there's a bunch of like, a lot of funny questions. And what was really powerful is Paul, and I believe it was Paul, it might have been another one of the founders, he did this alignment thing, exactly what we're talking about. And I think they're one of the first social networks that's picking a side, not a side like left, right, but a side in terms of who is the primary user or use type that we filter every decision through. And for them, it's the creators. So who is the creators, whoever is like the host of the room, they're the most important ones. So when they're designing the product of like, well, who should have speaking rights or who should control the speaking rights? Well, the person who's the moderator, the creator, they should control who can speak, who cannot. They should be able to move people down, move people up. They should be able to kick someone out. They should be able to not kick someone out. The troll button, that's a creator move, right? Because like a random person observing the mob, they don't give a, they are almost entertained by the troll, but the creator cares about the trolls. They're like, oh, this guy's like, you know, you know, being a, a douche or something like that, right? And I think that's a really powerful lesson from a product perspective, just from a life perspective is like pick something and then filter everything through it. Because then what was also beautiful is when Ev was bringing up and, and they were, it was a very like great conversation, but Ev kind of brought up and you could, you know, if you're reading into it, it was like, you know, why did you make this decision? And like Twitter made this decision. That's not what the language was, but like. That's what it, that's what it boiled down to. Yeah. Were you in that room? No, no, I wasn't. I was just saying that's what it boiled down to, right? Is like that where Eb's coming from versus where Paul's coming from. Well, he was trying to learn. And then Paul basically was like, it was very easy for him to explain. Well, we prioritize the this this person. In this scenario, if we prioritize this person, this is what we should do. Easy. Easy peasy, like easy explanation. And I don't know, it's kind of beautiful, right? It's kind of beautiful. And I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But it's like, it's kind of beautiful because it, like, it makes the decisions easy. It makes explaining the decisions really easy. And it also tells you the side. And so if you don't like it, great, go to Twitter spaces or whatever it'll end up being. I call Paul an idealist, you know, and he has an ideal view of how this, like how community should be for kind of social media, to be honest, not just product and not just his product, in my opinion, but his product is where he gets to control that and manage that and affect it. And he's going for the idealism and the idealistic viewpoint. And he's clear about it though. Right. And, but that's what I call him. And I think that's good. It's, we, we need an experiment like this. We need somebody going after it with some idealism of this is the ideal scenario based on these principles and where the creator is the, the kind of controller of the situation uh, in these rooms that they create. I mean, it, it makes sense when you think about it, but it is very idealistic. And so we'll see how the feature set and the iterations happen to kind of double down on his idealism and, and how far he can go with it. So far, it looks like even controversies and stuff, it's working. Uh, and it's working because I think people feel empowered uh, when they're up on stage or when they're the kind of ones who create the room. And if you empower those people, I think the thesis is everyone else will come. And it's probably true. I mean, when you think about the logic of it 
And yes, it will break and it's going to break in all kinds of areas. Right. Um, but that's kind of the fun. So I, I don't know if, if I know we're almost a time, but like if, if anyone's listening, like, and you haven't checked out clubhouse or, or at least able to get an invite and check it out. I don't, I don't, I don't even know if I have any, uh, at this point, but like, it's a masterful execution of somebody's vision for what these community spaces should be like masterful. And when you hear Paul, the founder talk, I, I encourage anybody working on product or businesses to listen to him with this viewpoint of like, he knows what he wants and he's very clear about what the approach is uh, for them. And that, that I've just had the pleasure of watching that develop over the last year uh, as they've kind of launched the product. And I was, it was pretty early by like about April last year, I was on it. And for me, yeah, sure. Social media and all those issues are great. But for the context of my brain and my own self-development, watching him execute on product and describe how he thinks about it is like a lesson in product development and, and product thinking that's just well beyond like, you know, anything that you can get any other way because it's a platform where he gets to talk about it as often as he wants and hear the feedback. And like you said, circling back to the original topic, like he's helping reframe, helping reshape people's thinking about his product and his business and helping people share the story. And even if you asked me two weeks ago, could I say it as crisply as I did today, which obviously has room for improvement too? No, I couldn't. I couldn't, but I've been hearing him more and I've been learning and, and, and absorbing what I think his whole mental model for this thing is. So I'm excited about that business. And, and I think we'll be talking about it multiple times and multiple levels because it's one of the interesting things right now. I think the one thing, if I have clubhouse invites, hit me up. I, I always feel weird. Like, I don't know who to give them to. And so I'm always just like, I'm just going to hoard them. So if you need them, hit me up. <laughs> That's cool. Some of the most, they, they on Sundays, uh, they they have a clubhouse. Um, I can't remember what they call it, but it's basically the founders just talking to the community and being like, this is what's coming up next week. And this is what we're you know working on. And they take questions and these types of things. It's, it's actually a really cool, not only community lesson, but the product lesson, because just the way they're talking about it. It's like, oh, this is why we talk about it this way as well. Or, oh, we should actually talk about it a little bit this way. Like there's just such a confidence, like you said, in, in creating the ideal rather than just being satisfied with with what's out there, copy paste, you know, product thinking. So I'd encourage everyone exactly. to check those out. All right, man. Want to wrap this up? Yeah, let's do it. Any other final thoughts? This was not where I expected the conversation to go. And it was a really interesting and useful kind of conversation for me even. And I hope that people who are listening that care about management and leadership and companies and culture kind of take something out of this. But yeah, that, that's all I got to say um, because these topics are like, this is like the constant improvement we all do as managers and leaders. Yeah. This is exactly where I knew this conversation was going to go. Um, sure. <laughs> I just knew what was going to happen. No, I'm glad we made it through without the the internet breaking. So that was, that's what I was most excited about. For those who don't know, I, I am in Florida. Um, just, you know, doing the whole Florida thing now, because that's what I do during this, these winter months. But yeah, just uh, check us out. Let us know feedback. Just reply to the email sending out, find us on Twitter, these types of things. We want to make sure this is not only useful, but we also, you know, want to want to talk about topics that are on top of mind of everyone. So make sure it hits up and uh, yeah, we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure to subscribe to and tell your friends about Tradeoffs, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.